Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. What is the meaning of life? That's the age-old question which has plagued many people. Movies have been made discussing this question. Books have been written. People have traveled all over the world in search of an answer. What is the meaning of life and death? And it pops up in many different forms. What are we here for? What's my purpose in the universe? Where are we going? Etc. And on and on it goes. However, whatever form the question takes, the point is the same. Do my life and my death have any purpose at all? Arthur Schopenhauer was a German philosopher born in 1788, and he is credited with being the first person to explicitly ask this question and to kind of popularize it in an essay he wrote entitled Character. Since a man does not alter and his moral character remains absolutely the same all through his life, since he must play out the part which he has received without the least deviation from the character, since neither experience nor philosophy nor religion can affect any improvement in him, the question arises, what is the meaning of life at all? To what purpose is it played? This farce in which everything that is essential is irrevocably fixed and determined. Schopenhauer is a bit of a pessimist, if you can't tell. So. But we have all struggled with this same attitude at one point or another. What's the point? Nothing ever changes. No matter what I do, I feel stuck in the same rut. I feel insignificant. My problems are overwhelming. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, the, dirt, the, excuse me, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Have you ever felt that way? And it's easy to fall into these wrong ways of thinking when we take our minds off of what's true. And make no mistake, there are two major obstacles to this. One is our own flesh. We are our own worst enemy, but we have another enemy, Satan. And he is very crafty, and he lures us into a state of complacency and contentment. In the Screwtape Letters, which I've been reading recently, C.S. Lewis writes about a fictional account from a senior demon named Screwtape, and he's writing, coaching a junior demon named Wormwood. This is a fictional story, of course. But he's writing from the vantage point of where the spiritual warfare comes from in our lives. He's trying to tap into what the enemy, uh, how the enemy wants to deceive us. And so in this fictional story, Screwtape is warning Wormwood against causing his human or his patient to go for too big of sins, right? Because this might wake him up to the spiritual reality of life. And so Screwtape says, you will say these are very small sins, 
And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And by enemy, he means God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Those are frightening words because there's truth. There's a lot of truth in that. In our culture, it is a much better strategy to keep us comfortable and content. There's other places in the world where that strategy it doesn't work as well. But here in America, where we are uh, rich beyond measure uh, in so many ways, contentment, complacency is the big risk for us. And there's a, uh, our enemy speaks to us. He sings to us a kind of lullaby that puts us to sleep in a lot of ways, right? Like, uh, leave, leave the, uh, the hard things to the super Christians, right? To those who have been trained, to their calling to do the hard things. Leave that to them. Like, you're a pretty good person, right? You don't need to risk everything that you have for the sake of, Possibly offending somebody, losing a job, losing a friendship, right? Our comfort is often our biggest uh, obstacle when it comes to living for Christ, right? And so on and on this lullaby goes until we drift ever so slightly out into the nothing. And oftentimes we don't even realize it's happening. And that's the, scary, that's the truly scary part is we don't realize it's happening most of the time. Until we drift so far away from the light that we can't see it anymore. And oftentimes, we don't want to see it anymore. So what does Jesus say about this drifting away? He says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, I know you were enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. Good so far. But I have this against you. In spite of what I just said, I have this against you. That you have abandoned your first love. The love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You're doing well. But you've missed the most important thing. You've abandoned your first love. And what is the answer? Remember. Remember your first love and repent. To the church in Sardis, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. They're dead. This, this has the picture of the heart of the church is dead. The heart starts pump, stops pumping but the brain has not caught up to the fact that it's already dead. It just doesn't know it yet. And there's a brief window of period to perform some spiritual CPR and bring this church back to life. But they're going to have to wake up. 
And to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They're lukewarm. They're tepid. They're not good for anything. You might say that they're salt that has lost its saltiness. How many of us are lukewarm this morning? Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire. If that verse sounds familiar, it should. It should put you in mind of 1 Peter, where he says, he's, he's been talking about the great salvation that we have in Christ. And this is their motivation, their driving force. So in this, in this great salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Laodiceans have a faith that is man-centered. They're going to have to get uncomfortable. And this sounds a lot like the church in America today. We struggle to pray because we don't feel desperate for anything. We basically have all of our needs met at any given time. And so we struggle to pray for our daily bread because it's already there most of the time. I mean, even, even at our, the points we've struggled the most financially, I've never really been concerned that our kids were not going to be able to eat that day. I've never reached that point. We're rich, we're comfortable, we're content, and therefore we're complacent. So we need to remember so the cause of this lukewarmness is just taking our focus off of our creator, off of Christ, and we put it, and we put our focus on us, and we drift away from the sun. So what does it mean for us to be born again, regenerate believers whose lungs are inhaling the oxygen that we didn't create, whose heart is beating, pumping blood? throughout our bodies, causing us to live by the will of God? What is the one who created all things and in whom all things live and move and have their being expect from us while we are here on earth? And the first thing is to awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have to wake up. We have to wake up and repent, and what's the promise if we do that? Christ will shine on you. And then we need to learn the lesson from, that Paul has for us today in our text, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now let's pray before we get into this. Father, this is a, a weighty text. It's heavy. It's very familiar to us in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways that's the problem. We're too familiar, we're too comfortable, we're too complacent 
with this text. We've heard it in many verses like it over the years, and we've just grown almost numb to the implications without realizing it. I pray that you would break up the hardened soil in our hearts, Father, and help your word take root anew this morning. Help us to remember our first love. Keep me from error this morning, Lord. May you be glorified in this place. Amen. So what is the meaning of life? To worship Christ in all that you do. To worship Christ in all that we do. And it really is that simple. It's that simple. Worship Christ. Glorify Christ. You can say it in many different ways, but the point is the same. To make much of Christ. To magnify Christ. To exalt Christ. Your life here on earth as a Christian is to glorify Christ in everything that we do. And it's simple. It's simple to hear it. It's simple to understand the words. But the implications are immeasurably deep. And of course, there's more we could say on the subject, but there's, there's not less than this. To worship Christ in all we do is the purpose of our life. Uh, from the New City Catechism, question number one. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that comes from Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul is writing from a prison cell. He doesn't know know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen in his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Is he going to be executed? Is he going to be set free? He has no idea. And as he's writing to encourage the Philippians to live out their Christian lives with joy, he gives us some insights from his own, his own struggles. And what is Paul's struggle from his prison cell? Is he struggling with anger at God for circumstances? Is he upset that God has let him be imprisoned? He's just following God's calling on his life. Is he feeling hopeless, used, abandoned, disillusioned? Paul is torn between two conflicting desires. He doesn't know whether to hope for rescue or execution. He wants to labor for the church. But as he's sitting in his cell, he realizes, maybe more than any other time in his life, or once again, because he's suffered quite a bit in his life, that he's so close to eternity. He's one word away from eternity. As he sits in his cell and he thinks over his life, he just wants to see Christ face to face. And he's so close. He can almost reach out and touch him at this point. And he longs to go home. And you can feel the desire in his words. Philippians 1.22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart 
and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You hear the battle? I want to go home. But you need me. Do we feel that pressure? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's his struggle. (laughs) That's his struggle. He doesn't know what to pick. I don't know. I hope I would struggle with that, but I don't know that I would. I think my first temptation would be, I want to get out of here as quickly as possible. And don't miss this. Paul's not saying that when I get out of here, I'm going to retire and move to the coast. It's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to work on my golf game. I'm going to take it easy for a while because I've earned it. I'm going to start checking things off my bucket list, my to-do list. Paul's goal is fruitful labor. If he survives, then it means back to work. That's what it means for him. To survive means fruitful labor. It means gospel ministry. It means discipleship, church planting. It means the sanctification of the church. He's working towards their progress and joy in the faith. Why? That you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Ample cause. Paul's life is wrapped up in Christ's glory. For Paul to live meant spending his day spreading the glory of Christ. And it's not like this is just a special calling on his life. He has a special calling as an apostle of Christ. But he is discipling. He's making disciples that are going to then go and make disciples. That is his goal, to spread the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. And he calls on believers to imitate him as he imitates Christ. That's what disciple making is. And we also bear the name of Christian, don't we? And there's something else that we need to keep in mind. something else we need to keep in mind and it often gets overlooked we talk about as Christians that Christ has died for us Christ has died for you and that's true that is 100% true but we cannot forget that if we are born again believers in Jesus Christ that you died with Christ Christ died for you and you and I died with Christ. We look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer Paul who lives. If you're a Christian, it's no longer you who live. The gospel changes us from the inside out. The old self 
as crucified with Christ. We are ransomed from sin and death. We are redeemed, purchased with the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer our own. And if you could spend any time talking to people, even within the church, Christians don't understand this a lot of times. A lot of times, Christians are the ones missing this point. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought, you were purchased. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You go through baptism, the symbol, you go into the water, you go into the grave, you die in a death like Christ. You come up out of the water, you come up out of the grave, raised to new life in Christ. We forget, we forget that. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not, it's not a transgender argument for no genders. What this is, is that your identity is primarily Christ. There's no, there's no white Christians, there's no black Christians, liberal, conservative, southern, northern, whatever, east and west coast. There's none of that. There's Christ. That's our identity. And that's where we mess up so often. That's where we lose our focus. Jesus paid a high price for you and me. High price. And when we believe in him with genuine faith, we spiritually die with him. The old self passes away. But he doesn't stop there. So the old self has spiritually died in Christ, but the new self has been spiritually raised with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on Christ, on things that are above, excuse me, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's almost like you don't really appear until you see Christ face to face. He appears. We, are we getting it? Are we getting it? <laughs> we got to stop thinking that we are the center of the universe, that the sun revolves around us. The sun doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around the Son of God, not the other way around. The new creation no longer seeks things that are of the world. The new creature has a renewed heart, a renewed mind. The new creature sees his life or her life through eternal lenses. And you can tell that this is where Paul's mindset is. As he sits in this prison cell debating these two outcomes and which one he prefers, this is his mindset. He's thinking eternal. Even when he's thinking about remaining in the flesh, his goal is to help the church grow in sanctification. He no longer thinks in terms of my life. Paul's only reason to remain in the flesh, to remain alive, is to the glory of Jesus Christ. 
a fair question to ask at this point. Does Paul practice what he preaches? What does living for Christ look like in Paul's life? Are his unfortunate circumstances going to derail his faith? Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The gospel is moving throughout the whole prison system. Now, a lot of us in this situation would think it justified to take a little break here and to think about ourselves for a while. He's not, he's not moping around. He's not having a pity party. What does he do? He looks around and he says, I wonder, he's in his cell, he's looking around, he says, I wonder if the other prisoners, I wonder if the guards have ever heard of Jesus. That's amazing. He gets to work. What about his reputation? Surely Paul cares about his reputation. He had a very good reputation at one point. Surely that would be traumatic for this Hebrew of Hebrews. Philippians 1.15 Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Thinking to afflict me. Imagine what that gospel message sounded like. <laughs> so what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I rejoice. Really, Paul? You got people using your imprisonment as an opportunity to get a leg up on you as an opportunity to attack you personally. And all he cares about is that Christ is proclaimed. He's not, he's not concerned about Paul. As far as he's concerned, Paul is dead. He's died with Christ. In his mind, he no longer lives. Christ lives in him. So it's almost like they're one and the same goal. Because his life is no longer important. It's Christ living through him. And it's that reputation, it's that that matters. His top priority is the glory of Christ. How does he do this? Philippians 4, 11. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we've heard this verse abused a lot in our culture. <laughs> we've heard, you know, our football teams can win, <laughs> right? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, I can glorify Christ in whatever circumstance I am in. If I'm struggling, if I'm doing well, if I'm hungry, if I'm full, my circumstances do not dictate my purpose in life. And that's how you and I are supposed to live our lives every day, every single day. Whether it's at work, in our neighborhoods, at the grocery store, at home with a bunch of rowdy children, wherever it is, wherever we find ourselves. And the world tells us, right, to live like every day might be your last. Take advantage of the time. Carpe diem, seize the day, right? And I think Paul would agree with that, but I think he would mean something very different. Our time here on earth is limited. It's a blink of an eye in the scope of reality, right? So yes, seize the day. <laughs> Live like today might be your last, but not, not how the world would have you do it, seeking every pleasure, right? The glory of Christ. This might be your last opportunity to talk to your neighbor, to talk to a loved one, to share the gospel with them. To live is Christ. Paul doesn't stop here, though. He's given us enough to think about in this short verse, but he doesn't stop there. Because remember, his first desire is not to stay here on earth. His first desire is to depart and be with his Lord, because that is, in his words, far better. Right? To live is to live in the power of Christ for the glory of Christ, but to die is gain gain the purpose of our life and death is to show Christ's worth over all this world over all this world has to offer so I think it goes without saying but I'll say it anyway Paul is not suicidal he's not contemplating suicide if he wanted to die all he'd have to do is just try and escape because the Roman guards would have happily assisted him into eternity, right? Because if they were to, if if you let a prisoner escape, your own life was forfeit most of the time. And so, if he wanted to die, he really could have he could have made it happen. All right. Paul is trying to decide what to hope and pray for. Right, a temporary release back into the world, or an eternal release to his home. His true home. So when he talks about departing to be with Christ, it's because that's where Paul's heart is. That's where his desires are with his Lord and Savior. Right? Is that how we are? Is that how we would characterize our own desires? That we're anxious to leave this world behind, all that it has to offer to be with Christ? I don't know. 
Or are we like, I've still got stuff to do here. I've got more I want to do. I've got more I want to accomplish. I've got more I want to see. There's nothing wrong with living the life that God has given you, blessed you with. But our greater desire should be to be with our Savior. Paul is hard-pressed between the two options. Are we? Are we hard-pressed? Or do we feel pressed at all? It's not that death isn't scary. I think any reasonable person would say that death is scary. The process of dying is scary. Paul didn't have some sick pleasure about pain and suffering. But he knows. He knows something. That the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy. That's the last obstacle to his full joy. The only thing in between him and the fullness of joy that he's anxious for. And the death of a Christian who is eagerly anticipating Christ is a a true testament to Christ's value, isn't it? To his worth. It's an incredible testimony to the surpassing worth of Christ for a Christian who's not afraid of dying because they're anticipating the joy of seeing Jesus face to face. There's nothing in the world that they desire more. Right? And people take notice of that. When Christians have died in the past and still are dying today for their faith, right? when they see that, you know, in in Roman times, all they had to do was something as simple as burn incense, and they could go free. Right? But then like, like Polycarp, all he had to do was renounce Christ. He's 80, 80-something years old. All he's got to do is renounce Christ, and he can live out the rest of his days in peace. He says, how can, my Lord has never done me wrong. I'm paraphrasing this quote, but. Jesus has never done me wrong, so how could I do that to him, right? That kind of eager anticipation, that kind of loyalty to Christ stands out to people. And it shows the worth and value of Christ over this world, right? What's the point of spending our entire lives gaining treasures, worldly pleasures? When you, you, we know this. We know it intellectually. You can't take any of it with you, but we still do it. We still do it. Naked we came into the world, and naked we're going to leave. And who's going to be there waiting for us? Jesus. And we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye when we see him face to face. And nothing in this world is going to help us in that moment except the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Hebrews 9, 26 But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. 
Don't read through that too fast. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Does that describe you and I as we go about our daily lives? An eager anticipation of Christ. Is Paul eager as he sits in prison? Paul's mentality is you can come to me or I'm going to come to you. Either one. Either way, I'm good. I just want to be with you. That's his desire. Like Moses, I just want to see your glory, Lord. (laughs) Never mind the fact that it's going to kill you if you do. I want more of you. That's Paul's desire. Do we think that way? The loss of everything else. Paul's safety, his circumstances, his comfort, his reputation, and even his life are worth sacrificing when compared to Jesus. Paul could have lived a comfortable life. He really could have. He had had the opportunity for wealth, for power, prestige. But he had that opportunity apart from Christ. And he's well on his way to all of those things when Christ intervenes on his road to Damascus. Paul, look at Philippians 3, 4 to 6. Though I, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. That is a shocking statement. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul gave all of that up. Would we say that? Righteousness under the law, blameless? At any point in your life, would you ever say that about yourself? Paul gives it all up, and he has more reason to be confident than than most of us. So the question is, why? In spite of all he could have had in life, look at 2 Corinthians 11, 22. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. And cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That fruitful labor he's talking about. Top of everything. I think about the week I had leading up to this sermon. I think of the pressures Paul had on him with his daily anxieties for all the churches. 
He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he chose. These were not accidents. This was not a series of unfortunate events in his life. He chose this life. Why? What would cause a person to suffer, toil, go hungry, be beaten again and again and again? Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All that stuff he could have boasted in, and no doubt at one point in his life did boast in. Now it's garbage, rubbish, refuse. Worthless. Why? Because he found something better. He traded, in his mind, he's traded in garbage for a treasure. (laughs) Do we see it that way? And he didn't give up his old life grudgingly. That's really remarkable. He didn't give it up grudgingly. He didn't say, fine, Jesus, take it. Fine, woe is me. Feel sorry for me. Compared to his old life, compared to what he has found, his old life is worthless. It's rubbish because of what he gained, because of what he found. And we have to see Jesus in the same way. Or we are going to lose the purpose of our lives. We're going to lose the meaning of our life and our death if we lose sight of Christ. If we start focusing on my life, my identity, what I want, what I desire, we're going to lose sight of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah is prophesying about the wedding feast in heaven. When we come into our full inheritance in Christ. And listen to the way in which the people rejoice in the presence of God. And ask yourself, do I long for Christ in this same way? Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We have waited for him. He's come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
Are we? Or do we get distracted? This is God coming to be with his people forever, right? There's no sun in heaven. There's no temple in heaven. You don't need them. You don't need those things anymore. Those things point to a reality that is now here and present. God is going to be with his people. Relationship fully restored. No more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. For all of eternity. So whatever they sacrificed in life was insignificant next to that reality. Suffering is not insignificant. But next to that reality, it is small. They gained the one who created them, who made them, and the one whom they were made for. You cannot find your purpose in life apart from the one you were made for. And the question for you and I, are we anticipating that day with the same longing in our hearts? Does the anticipation of that day change what you're going to do this coming week? It should. That's what's driving Paul here. As he anticipates and wrestles with these competing desires to help the church, to build up the church, to spread the glory of Christ to the nations, or to go home and to be with Christ. They're both good, but one is far better. To die is gain. And how we meet our death reflects how much worth we place on Christ. It reflects the value that we put on Christ. And the world sees that. Our neighbors, our friends, our family see that. And it might mean physically dying. But there's a lot of ways every day that we die to self that look much less glorious and heroic. Could be changing a diaper, answering a phone call when you're tired and you don't want to. Could look like a lot of things. Is Christ worthy of our worship? Absolutely. And we reflect that in our lives and in our deaths. Lastly, for me, for to me to live is blank. What? To die is what? This section is for you to fill out. I'm not going to give you the answer. How are you going to answer the question? What is it you live for? What is it your family lives for? And what is it that Poplar Springs Baptist Church lives for? What does death mean to you? Does it bring up feelings of fear, guilt, uncertainty? Or like Paul, can we say with convictions in our heart, yes, to live is Christ. And yes, dying is is painful but it's gain it's victory first corinthians 15 verse 54 when the perishable 
puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. This short verse is weighty and it is deep. We understand. Help us, therefore, to understand what it means that you were victorious over sin and death. What does that mean? What does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for Monday morning or this afternoon? Help us understand that our old self has died. Our old identity is dead. It no longer exists. If we are in Christ, if we are born again, we have a new identity in Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to leave here and live and die as if we really believe that you are worthy of glory and honor and power and that to be with you is indeed gain. It's a great victory and it's better than anything we can have on this earth. And it's in Jesus' victorious name that I pray. Amen.